The word of the Lord from Leviticus 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take Aaron, his sons with him, the garments, the anointing oil, the bull of the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the whole community at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the community assembled at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses presented Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, wrapped the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He put the woven band of the ephod around him and fastened it to him. Then he put the breastpiece on him and placed the Urim and Thummim into the breastpiece. He also put the turban on his head and placed the gold medallion, the holy diadem, on the front of the turban, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it to consecrate them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar with all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed and consecrated him. Then Moses presented Aaron's sons, clothed them with tunics, wrapped sashes around them, and fastened headbands on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Amen. Thanks, Angela. Well, if you are newer to the church, you should know that one of the things we absolutely love to do is to just go through books of the Bible on Sundays. Sometimes we'll do a topical teaching series or we'll, you know, the season of Advent, but really our bread and butter is taking books of the Bible and Books of the Bible include books like Leviticus, which oftentimes get skipped because of passages like Angela just read. And why are we, why are we putting oil on everything? And you're putting oil on the utensils, and usually at home I'm trying to get oil off of my utensils. And what are we doing? And this is very confusing and very strange and very foreign. But friends, let me tell you what. Uh, this passage today and all of God's word in, in, in Leviticus is so rich with meaning and so rich with symbolism. And I'm really excited to share with you today about the idea of a priesthood the idea of a holy priesthood. And we're going to tackle a pretty big chunk today, chapters 8, 9, and 10. The reason we're going to do that is because, first of all, this is really the main story part of Leviticus, 8, 9, and 10. And it's hard to break up the story. You kind of need to see the whole story altogether. But second, there's a lot of repetition. Actually, most of chapter 9 is repetition of all the sacrifices that we've already been looking at. It's just them doing it, not just talking about doing it, but them actually doing it. So I'm going to walk through some things here from these three chapters. I encourage you maybe later this week or later even today to go back and just read these three chapters in light of the things I'm about to share. But in order for me to do anything that's effective whatsoever, we need God to show up. Amen? So let's pray together. And pray for me, pray for our own hearts as we go before the Lord in his word. God, I need your help to be able to teach this. 
So would you please help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word? And Lord, would you give each and every single one of us a receptive heart to the things that this passage is communicating to us. Lord, we want to grow closer to you. We want to grow more like you. We want to know you, Lord Jesus, our great high priest. And Lord, I ask and I pray that we would draw closer to Jesus as a result of our time together right here and right now. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, I want to start off with a slightly strange analogy, but that's my main type. So I want you to imagine you live somewhere very remote, You don't have any electricity. You don't have any power. For some of you, I know that sounds like heaven on earth. But for the rest of us, it's like, man, there's no heat. There's no lights. There's no electricity. There's no, you know, the amenities that we need in life. And actually, it makes life really hard. It's hard to cook. It's hard to see. It's hard to stay warm. And and it feels like life is very fragile. You go to sleep one night, and you and all of your neighbors that live in this area, you go to sleep one night, and one morning you wake up, and there in your backyard is a nuclear power plant. What? I know it's a weird analogy, right? This is incredible. A nuclear power plant, like unlimited energy. This is clean nuclear. This is like, this is going to like supercharge everything. But you start to walk up to it and you realize that none of y'all know how to run a nuclear power plant. How many of you here know how to run a nuclear power plant? Yeah, some of the kids are raising it. I knew that you kids would raise your hands. It's like when I'm at home and I'm doing a project, I'm starting to get frustrated because it's not working. And like one of my kids will walk over, here, dad, let me do it. I'm like, you don't know how to do it either. You, you, You have this incredible source of life and energy and power right in front of you, but nobody has been trained. Nobody knows how to go into this nuclear power plant. And if you just start pushing buttons and flipping switches, well, you might cause what? A meltdown. You might cause a really serious problem. There needs to be somebody who has the right credentials to go into that power plant so that everyone can experience all of that power and all of that life. Now, it's an imperfect analogy for sure, but it's something kind of like that. Imagine that you're one of the children of Israel And you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord shows up by his mighty outstretched arm and the the powerful speaking of his voice, and he brings you out of slavery. He brings you through the waters of chaos. He brings you on the other side of the Red Sea, and now you are in the Sinai Desert. You're living in a tent, and God has made a promise that he would come to dwell with you, and you wake up one morning, and there is this sacred tent, this sacred tabernacle with the source of all life and being himself that has taken up residence. If you guys remember when we were looking at the end of Exodus, when God showed up, it scared them all to death. Because what would it be like to be in the presence of being himself. And there he is. And nobody can go into the tabernacle and nobody can go into this place of meeting with God because no one was trained. No one was worthy. No one was credentialed to enter into God's presence. Not even Moses could. And so the problem of Leviticus is, well, God said that we're going to dwell together, but how do we do it? How do we live as sinful, fallen, flawed, unclean mortals? How do we live in the presence of a perfectly holy God? And God's going to give three answers. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Three answers. The first answer is, here are these sacrifices that enable you to adopt a posture of worship to come into my presence. The third part of the solution we're going to get to later in the fall, which is holy living in our relationships and in our communities. But the second part of the solution, so there's sacrifices, there's right living, but the second part of the solution, how are we going to live in relationship with God, is a priesthood. 
Biblical scholar Jay Sklar, Sklar, what a cool name. He puts it this way. He said, when Israelites engaged in public worship, they came before the very presence of their holy king in his holy palace. But this presented an immediate problem for the Lord's holiness destroys impurity and sinfulness in the same way that light destroys darkness. How then could impure and sinful Israelites come safely before him? Well, through the work of holy priestly mediators. By having the ordination ceremony take place before all the Israelites, the Lord made clear to them that they needed ritually holy people to act as their representatives before him. And by providing such mediators, the Lord assured the Israelites that he desired them to enter into his presence and enjoy covenant fellowship with him. The priests are part of the solution of how we can live in the presence of God. Now, priests, let's just pause for a minute. Priest is kind of a, for many of us in modern American society, the idea of a priest is kind of a strange idea, is it not? Maybe some of you grew up in the Catholic Church or Eastern Orthodox Church, and so there's a little bit of familiarity with the idea of a priest. But, but for most of us, the, that word priest, it's, it's kind of an unusual or strange-sounding word. But really, the basic idea is someone who is a go-between. There's someone who represents the people before God, and there's someone who represents God before the people. And priests are actually one of the most common, one of the most you know, ubiquitous ideas found in all of human civilization. We have records of priests from ancient Egypt from 6,000 years ago. Virtually every society, every ancient uh, you know, civilization, every people group, every religion has some version of priesthood involved in it. It's a very, very common idea in human civilization. Now, the Bible actually tells us why. Why is this such a common idea? You know why? Because the very first person who was ever created, Adam, is created to be a priest. In Genesis chapter 2, it says that the Lord God, he created Adam, the man, from the dust of the earth and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work in the garden and to watch over it. Now, I said this a few months ago in our uh, all things new series about work, but those two words right there, to work in the garden, the word for work is the same exact Hebrew word as worship. And the word for watch over it is to guard or to safeguard it and to keep it. If you go to Numbers chapter three, those exact two same words are used for the Levitical priests as to the kind of things that they did. They would worship or work and they would watch and they would guard, which leads us to the idea of, well, what is it in the Bible? What is it that a priest does? What is the, what is the duties of a priest? We see that it really boils down to three main duties. The first one is to safeguard sacred space. To say this is a place of, of a holy, set apart, uh, a divine sort of nature. Right? When, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created all things. And then he created the land of Eden. And within the land of Eden, he created the garden. And in the center of the garden, there were two what? There were two trees. And Adam's job was to watch over that and to safeguard that sacred space. 
The second role of a priest is to mediate and even extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. What did God tell Adam once Eve showed up on the scene? He created Eve to be the, the, the partner to Adam and said, go into all the world, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. There's this expanding. We're going to go into all the world, and we're going to show the whole world what God is like. That's one of the priestly duties, to go and extend God's glory. And then third... There's a priestly duty, especially as it comes to Leviticus, we see it very clearly laid out, that priests are to instruct the people and care for the people. That this is one of the roles of a priest. Now, Adam was given these duties. How did Adam do? Not good. It's interesting to think about the scene in Genesis 3 of the fall, right? What we commonly call the fall. That moment is when we understand that sin entered the world and really everything just got messed up. But you actually could read Genesis 3 and you could actually see that Genesis 3 would not have happened if Adam had done his job as priest. It's interesting that he did not safeguard sacred space, did he? Why did the serpent enter in? If he, as a priest, was supposed to guard over that area to watch it, to keep it, why is the serpent coming in in the first place? Adam had a role of protection that he should have done. It's also interesting to think that the instruction for Adam as a high priest was given to him before Eve was created. That Adam was given this instruction to watch over it, to work it, and that Eve shows up later And when she goes into that that, that conversation with the serpent, the Bible tells us that Eve was tricked. She was deceived. But whose job was it to teach her what God had said? Adam. And many scholars have written about this and touched on this idea that Adam failed in his responsibility to instruct Eve. She wasn't yet created when God gave that instruction. And he, as that high priestly representative, did not do his job. And consequently, he was kicked out of the garden, he and Eve, and therefore there's no more mediating and no more extending of God's glory. And you read the rest of the book of Genesis, and it's like, it's like there's no priests anywhere. There's one guy, one dude named Melchizedek, and he's weird. Uh, kind of just appears out of nowhere, disappears. No, you know, the author of Hebrews really likes him and thinks that it was a, a shadow and a type of Jesus to come. And Melchizedek's awesome. And I'm sorry, called you weird, Melchizedek. We'll see you in heaven someday. But the idea here is that Adam really messed up. And because of that, there's no more God and humans dwelling together. There's no more priestly mediation. God shows up for sure in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and other people, but it's not the like regular, we're going to live together kind of thing that it used to be in the garden. And so when God redeems his people out of Egypt, when he sets them free, when he takes them through the waters of chaos again, it's almost like God is saying, all right, let's start this whole thing over. Adam messed it up. Humanity has been plunged into all sorts of chaos and destruction, but I am picking this people group and we're starting over again. You will be my people, I will be your God, and we will dwell together. And he actually goes so far as to say, we're not just going to have one priest this time, we're going to have a whole nation of priests. Exodus 19, God says this to the people of Israel through Moses. He said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll listen carefully to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, even though the whole earth is mine and belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of what, Sound City? Priests. 
The whole nation of Israel is going to be priests. You will be my holy nation. This whole people group is going to safeguard that which is holy. This whole people group is going to mediate and extend God's glory throughout the earth. And this whole people group is going to instruct the nations what it means to follow the one true God. So the people go, well, we don't know how to do that. It's like the people waking up with a nuclear power plant in their backyard. Like, how do we do this? And so God says, we're going to pick one tribe. We're going to pick one family group and we're going to train them. We're going to teach them and they're going to be the priests for the whole nation of priests. What tribe is it, by the way, if anybody's paying attention? Levi, the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi, and we're going to pick, actually not just the whole tribe of Levi, we're going to pick the family of Aaron. Aaron has, uh, best we can tell, four sons. And so we're going to train these four sons and they're going to be the priests to the priests to the priests to the whole world. And so they're going to gather together. They're going to have a big ceremony. And Leviticus 8 tells us it's a seven day long ceremony. Picking up in verse 33, telling the priests, Sons of Aaron, do not go outside the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days. Has anyone ever been camping for seven days? Lord, have mercy on you. Until the time of your ordination is completed because it will take seven days to ordain you. When I was ordained as a pastor, uh, they prayed over me, they handed me a Bible, and then my family went out to lunch at Red Robin. It did not take seven days. It was a lot quicker than that. The Lord has commanded what has been done today in order to make atonement for you. You must remain at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the Lord's charge so that you will not die for this is what I was commanded. So we'll walk through chapter eight because a lot of this is repeated information we've already looked at, but they they start going through all these meaningful rituals. They start to go through all of these different steps and it's actually seven steps. It's explicitly said there's seven steps. It's always seven in the Torah. So the first step is they had to go out and they started gathering supplies. The Lord told them to go gather supplies. So they went and gathered the animals for the offering. They started gathering the anointing oil. They started gathering all the materials that would be needed for this seven-day ritual. Second step, they washed and they dressed the priests. Now, that's what we heard in our scripture reading, all of that dressing language. Why would they put them in such official robes and such official clothing? Because even still, uh, Attire communicates responsibility. Attire communicates responsibility. If you ever go, you know, to a public place somewhere, you know, maybe you go to a concert or something, there's a security guard, he's wearing a specific thing. It's like, oh, I can't go past that because that's a security guard. You go to a certain, you know, restaurant, somebody's dressed in a certain way, that means they can go back into the kitchen. One time at Disneyland, I got yelled at somebody who was wearing official attire for Disneyland because we were waiting for like one kid to go to the bathroom and I was playing tag with one of my other kids and I climbed up on one of like the walls and this Disneyland employee came walking past and yelled at me, said, get down off the wall. And here's the most embarrassing part. You know how this person was dressed? Alice in Wonderland. That was the official. I got yelled at by Alice in Wonderland. Get off the wall. I'm like, well, she did it. I'm like throwing my little kid under the bus. Like, come on. It was, I just happened to be trying to get away from her. The point is uniforms communicate authority. I got off the wall because Alice in Wonderland yelled at me, right? The priests are dressed in these fancy robes and this fancy stuff, and it's very different to us in our culture, but this would have been something that communicated authority to those people. Then, step three, the priests were anointed with oil. And this isn't just a little dab. This is oil being poured all over them. And oil is a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. This is a way of them saying, you're not going to do this on your own strength. God is going to equip you and God is going to empower you by his Holy Spirit to help you do this role. 
And then they start going through the sacrifices, the offerings that we've talked about. And it's interesting, when they actually start the worship service, they do the sacrifices in a slightly different order than what we did. The very first one is the purification offering or the sin offering, as we talked about last week. And the idea here is that these priests are themselves sinful human beings. They are not perfect. They have to have a sacrifice for themselves in order to step into this role of leadership. Next, they do the burnt offering. That was the first one we looked at. And the the whole burnt offering is given up to the Lord as a sign of total wholehearted devotion. And these priests are saying, Lord, everything belongs to you and we belong to you in this job that we're about to do. And then they do a special ordination offering. But really, if you look at it, it's just a fellowship offering, the shalom offering, where they eat together and they experience the, the, the presence of God and the people all together. It's, a, it's kind of a communal celebration. Look at the, go look at those verses and see how much they match up to the fellowship offering. And then lastly, there's the final consecration, some sprinkling of blood, and they eat the meal together, and now the priests are ready for business. By the way, I just, this, just because I think this is fun to address, look at Leviticus chapter 8 in verse 22. I just want to look at one of the strange rituals because it just seems so strange to us. Verse 22 says, Next he, Moses, presented the ram, the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it, and he took some of the blood and put it on Aaron's right earlobe, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. (laughs) Moses also, they didn't do that to me when I was ordained as a pastor. Moses also presented Aaron's sons and put blood on their right earlobes, on the thumbs of their right hand, and on the big toes of their right feet. And then Moses splattered blood all over all sides of the altar. And then we're reading along in the book of Leviticus and like, why? And Leviticus is like, I'm not going to tell you why. You know, it's just one of those things, and scholars have puzzled over this for generations, and some people think it has to do with, you know, like the ear of like hearing from God and the hand like serving and the foot like going about, and other people think it has to do with like the corners, like the extremities, like guarding, you know, you yourself as a temple of the Lord. But at the end of the day, nobody really understands what this ritual is. We just know that it's a meaningful ritual of setting some people apart for a special role of leadership. By the way, Before you make fun of the Bible, does anyone know why you take the tassel from your graduation cap and move it to the other side? Do you even know why we're wearing those stupid flat caps to begin with in graduation season? Like, there's weird rituals that we do. Like, I'm going to take a deadly square frisbee with four sharp corners. I'm going to throw it in the air and hope it doesn't stab someone's eye out. Like, this graduation season, right? We do weird things. Why do we do these weird things? Someone somewhere, like, maybe thinks that they know, but at the end of the day, These rituals are culturally shared things that have meaning to different cultural groups. And the word of the Lord comes to us from ancient Semitic people living in the desert. And they said, put some blood on the big toe. So doggone it, we're putting blood on the big toe, okay? Just think about how weird our rituals are before you make fun of the Bible, okay? Now, chapter nine, we've done it. We've ordained the priests. Their thumbs are bloody, we're ready. So on the eighth day, the the first day of new creation, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and all the elders of Israel. And he said to them, okay, 
Let's get a young bull for a sin offering, one more sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both of them without blemish, and we're going to present them before the Lord. Okay, skip another verse 22. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them, and he came down after sacrificing the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, and Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. All right, okay, no, no, fail, fail. Okay, listen. This is the whole reason why Leviticus exists, you guys. Remember, the end of Exodus, nobody could enter the tent of meeting. What do we do? We need sacrifices. We need a priesthood. That was the, you should have, you should have gone out of your mind at that verse, okay? So we're going to do it again. We're going to practice, okay? When I say that they entered the tent of meeting, we're going to go berserk. Ready? (sighs) Calm myself down. Pretend like you hadn't heard that before, okay? Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he came down after sacrificing the sin offering and the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, and oh my gosh, Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. Yeah, there we go. We did it, finally. Oh, that's pretty good. I I need a nap. Uh, When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. They're crying out, holy is our Lord. Is this great? This is so great. But if you read the Bible, if you're studying the storyline thus far, you might think, hey, I remember the last time God instituted a priesthood. Remember when, when Adam was put in as the priest? I hope, this, I hope this priesthood does better. I hope this group of priests does better. So we keep reading Leviticus chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, there's two of them, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan and, and put fire in it and placed incense on it and presented an, an unauthorized fire. Some of your translations say a strange fire before the Lord. And we don't know exactly what they did. There's, there's some ambiguity here, but we do know this. It was something that he had not commanded them to do. They've literally just finished seven days of ordination, seven days of consecration. They're, they just saw the glory of the Lord come. They finally were able to enter into close relationship with God. And what do these two priests do? They redefine worship on their own terms. So fire came from the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. This is a extreme downward turn from the joy of what was just happening a moment ago. So the story goes on. There's, there's two more sons. There's only two more. So the first two have, have died, being consumed by the, the holiness of the Lord. So they get the two more sons and they give some extra stringent instructions. They have to cut their hair short. They can't have any tears in their clothing. They cannot drink any wine or beer before they come in to serve in the tabernacle of the Lord. Like there's only two left. If something happens to them, this whole priesthood endeavor is done. It's over before it ever started. And they say to these last two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Eleazar and Ithamar, you must distinguish 
between the holy and the common. You must distinguish between the clean and the unclean. You have to teach all of the Israelites the statutes that the Lord had given to them through Moses. And the story ends with them kind of tentatively stepping in and leading worship. But actually, Moses comes and he he starts to notice, wait a minute, these two guys have done something that they shouldn't do either. They offered up the sin offering, but they didn't eat any of the meat. They just burned the whole thing up. And Moses is like, seriously, you guys too? And Aaron steps up and goes, listen, I can't eat. I just lost two of my sons. After what I've been through today, I couldn't eat it. I couldn't eat the meal of the, of the sin offering. And so I just instructed them to do it as a burnt offering unto the Lord rather than see it be wasted. And Moses goes, okay, fine, I guess. And that's how the story ends. The inaugural worship service. We're finally in God's presence. There's a, there's a priesthood. There's sacrifices. There's a tabernacle. We get it all working. We get it all going. And an immediate downhill fall. It's like being at the one-yard line with an opportunity to win a Super Bowl and then you throw it instead of run it or something like that. Sorry, too soon? Sorry. I'm just trying to help you connect with the word of God, okay? Here's what this passage teaches us. This passage teaches us that whether you realize it or not, you need a priest. You need a priest. We all need priests because... God created us in such a way that we are connected to Adam, the first human being. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, just like in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That there's this idea that the way that humanity is constructed, God made us in such a way where we always need this mediatorial representative for us to come before God. And I would actually say that that works out at a a practical and a personal level as well. That people, whether they realize it or not, are often grasping after things that will give them satisfaction and we turn to mediators, we turn to priests who we think will give us access to that which we want. So for some people, they desire power or maybe they fear societal change and so they cling to political priests, politicians, priestly representatives who will mediate presence before me, mediate me into the presence of power that I want. For others, there's a desire for self-worth or identity, and so we turn to priests of self-help and gurus who will help us just feel better about ourselves. Maybe others, we desire popularity or notoriety and just not being ignored anymore. And so we turn to the priests of social media, Instagram influencers and and TikTok gurus who will help us feel like our lives have some sort of meaning because now we've got followers. Now we've got people who pay attention to us. Others desire sexual pleasure and so they turn to the false priests or priestesses of pornography to usher them into that place of of pleasure and even still worship money. And we turn to the priests of Fox Business Channel or CNBC to help us you know, know if there's a recession coming and what I should do with my money. Our our hearts, listen, I know this about my own heart and in my you know, almost four decades of walking with other followers of, of Jesus, there's one thing I know pretty much for certain and that's the human heart is incredibly fickle and we long for things we long for satisfaction we long for identity we long for meaning and our sinful hearts often turn to false gods 
things that won't ultimately satisfy us. And each one of those false gods have false priests that try to usher us into that place. We want priests. We desire priests. We need priests. So there's a problem. There's either false priests leading us in false worship of a false God, or maybe slightly better, we do have a a, a true sort of priestly figure leading us in, in true worship of the true God, but they can't do it perfectly. All throughout the Bible, even the best priests, even the best ones still mess up. Adam messed up. Moses messed up. The Levitical priests messed up. They all messed up, even though they were supposed to be leading the people in worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not a single one could do it, friends, which is why the good news about Jesus is that he is the ultimate priest who finally shows up and for the first time in all of human history gets it right. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is now the place where God and man meet together. He is the new tabernacle. He's the new dwelling place for God. And during his earthly life and ministry, what did he do? He instructed the people and he cared for the weak and the vulnerable. And he came as a priest to preside over one final sacrifice that will bring us fully into God's presence. These animal sacrifices were temporary and they could never ultimately do. And so Jesus says, not only will I be the high priest that presides over the sacrifice, I myself will be the sacrifice and I will give my body and I will give my blood for the purification of everyone. And God vindicated him and raised him up on the third day. How many of you know that tomb is empty and he is no longer dead and he is a high priest in perpetuity. His reign never comes to an end. There are no term limits. He sits at the right hand of the father having now completed his work and he mediates the glory of God and is working on extending the glory of God throughout all the ends of the earth through the people that have come to him through faith. This is good news, friends. We have a high priest who invites us in. And he says, you want access to God? You come to me, repent of your sins, and place your faith in my death and my resurrection on your behalf. You will be washed clean. You'll be invited into God's presence. You won't have to guess. You won't have to wonder. You won't have to worry. Is is fire going to come out and consume me? No, you can know that you are safe before the Lord, that you are loved before the Lord, that you are clean before the Lord because Jesus is our ultimate high priest. And if there's anyone here today who has not yet trusted in Jesus, given your life to him, come to him in faith. I am pleading with you, come to God through Jesus Christ. Come to this great high priest who loves us so much that he gave his very life for us. Which leads me to the last thing I want to say today. And I'm speaking to Christians here. If you have, by God's grace, repented of your sin, been brought near by the blood of the covenant, well then, whether you realize it or not, you are a priest. You are a priest. Do you remember what God said to the children of Israel back in Exodus 19? I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you a what? A kingdom of priests that the whole people group, all the people that belong to God, we're all going to be priests. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, after the cross, after the resurrection, Peter is writing to Christians, both Jew and Gentile, spread throughout really all of Asia Minor, all of Turkey. What does Peter say? Peter says to these followers of the Messiah, he says, you are a chosen race, and you are a royal priesthood, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim 
the praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're now a priesthood. You now have been saved into right relationship with God. You've been saved into a family. You've been saved into a kingdom. You've been saved into a job. You've been saved into a role. See, with all the love and the respect in the world to our Catholic friends and family members, I actually spent some time with some Catholic family members just yesterday. Love them dearly. Many of them know and love Jesus genuinely. But this is one of the reasons why Protestant churches would disagree with Catholics over the need for a human earthly priesthood because there is now one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And we are all, as him as our high priest, we are all now priests who have been given direct access to God. We don't need to go through any other human mediator. With, you don't need me. You don't need the prayer team. You don't need the worship team. There's not a single one of these human beings that can, quote, usher you into the presence of God. You're in the presence of God. You have access to the presence of God. Priests, priestesses, you are royal priests and you have been given direct access to God. So let me ask a few questions in conclusion. I want you to think about this. What does it mean to live as a priest? I'm gonna ask you four questions. Some of them will be rather pointed. Talk about them in your homes and in your community groups this week. Do some business with God before we celebrate the Lord's table. First question is this. Where are you following false priests? You have a great high priest named Jesus Christ. He gives you access to all of life and meaning and identity and everything we could ever want or need. Where is your heart prone to worship false gods? And what false priests are you following in that pursuit? Go before the Lord and ask him to lovingly and graciously convict you and smash those idols to smithereens. We have one high priest named Jesus. I'm not saying it's wrong to follow business advice or to follow, you know, whatever, parenting advice. There's nothing wrong with following advice, but I know my heart and I think you should know your heart. It's easy to go and see that as a mediator to what our heart really wants instead of the one true God. Number two, Are you drawing near to God through Jesus regularly? If you are a priest, that means that you are in charge of worship. That means, like, I love the worship gathering. There's almost nothing I love. Actually, I could say there's virtually nothing I love more than the Sunday worship gathering. But at the end of the day, the Sunday worship gathering is only a part of your worship before the Lord. Are you leading yourself? Are you leading your family in worship of the one true God? Is the Bible open in your home? Are you praying before the Lord? Are you Sabbathing? Are you taking times of silence and solitude? Are you drawing near to God through Jesus? Or are you listening to podcasts from all of those false priests earlier? Number three, are you guarding sacred space? Are you guarding that which is holy and sacred? I can think of two New Testament examples. One of them would be in the book of Hebrews where it says to guard the marriage bed and keep it holy before the Lord. We live in a sexually perverse society. You cannot go anywhere. You can't watch anything. You can't see anything without sexuality being used in a marketing commodified sort of way. If we're people of this high priest... We don't use sex that way. The author of Hebrews says to guard that marriage bed. Keep it safe. Priests, priestesses, safeguard what is holy. The other other, um, example that comes to mind would be that of the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it, guard it as holy. 
Some of us are far too lax with God's commandment to rest and to worship and to connect. Guard it. And lastly, are you extending the glory of God? Are you you representing God and mediating his glory to the ends of the earth? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you showing the world what God is like? Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this passage in Leviticus and this idea of us being high priests, he says, oh, the dignity which Christ has put on the poorest believer. What a high office and consequently, what a solemn responsibility is ours. I'm gonna invite Pastor Steve to come lead us in communion, musicians to join me on stage. And as we prepare our hearts to draw near to God through this meaningful ritual of bread and wine, may we remember that we have one high priest who gives us access to God. And may we remember that we've been called into the priesthood. Let's pray. Lord, what a sacred responsibility it is to be called priests. Priests and priestesses of the most high God. And yet, Lord, that's what you've done. That's what you've called us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And but yet that's what you've done for us. So Lord, I ask that you would once again cleanse us from the inside out. And you would prepare us and you'd strengthen us in this meal to go about the work of the priesthood that you've called us all to. We pray this all in the name of our great high priest, Jesus. Amen.